Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. It's a pleasure, as always, to have your company. In a week where Victoria has started to loosen restrictions, as Greater Sydney finds itself going deeper and deeper into a protracted lockdown, we turn to the role that the media is playing in giving clear, unbiased information. On the weekend around the country, hordes of people protested lockdowns, charged with disinformation and paranoia. Most startling to see was in the city of Sydney, where thousands took to the streets in the middle of a lockdown, with the highly contagious Delta strain on the loose. A quick look at the media coverage in the build-up will see that many corners of the media were playing up to these deranged, ill-informed and quite irresponsible views. In this edition, we ask if the media and Sky News in particular have gone too far and what can be done to bring not just civility but unbiased information back to the position it should hold in our public space. To help us discuss how sections of the media have let down their audiences and their country, we're joined on the mic by two mics. Pardon the pun. Mike Carlton's career is extensive and packed with highlights. He began as a cadet journalist with the ABC in 1963, aged 17. He's been a foreign correspondent, a columnist and naval historian. He was one of the original reporters on the ABC's groundbreaking current affairs program This Day Tonight during the 1970s, before beginning a long and successful career in radio, hosting breakfast on 2GB and highly rated drive shows on ABC 702 and then 2UE. Mike Carlton, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Nice to be here. And the wonderful Mike Seckham also joins us. He started his career in Queensland with the Brisbane Telegraph and then the Brisbane Daily Sun before a spell at Rupert Murdoch's The Australian. Having spent well over a decade covering politics for the Sydney Morning Herald and then five years overseas with the Vineyard Gazette in Massachusetts, Mike has spent the last number of years as the Saturday Paper's national correspondent. Mike Seckham, welcome to Fourth Estate. Nice to be here. So we're 18 months into a pandemic and Sydney is now deep into a long and protracted lockdown with no end in sight. A quick look at social media will tell you we're not exactly all in this together anymore. You know, the media broke from that story as well quite a long time ago. Why do you think there is such a lack of unity? It it doesn't really feel like we're a collective nation anymore. Uh, Mike Seckham, you can go first. Look, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think to some extent this has been politically engineered. I mean, there was the fact that when Victoria was in lockdown, a lot of political figures on the conservative side of politics took great delight in jumping on the Victorian government, as did certain sections of the media, particularly the Murdoch media. And I think so to some extent, you know, we've got a bit of state of origin happening now that it's come back to bite New South Wales. So that's possibly part of it. And, you know, part of it obviously is just the fact that it's having differential impacts on different parts of the country. Mike Carlton, what do you think? Uh, I'd agree with that. There was a a lot of sneering at Dan Andrews and the Victorian Labor government when it struck its problems. And Andrews didn't handle it perfectly by any means. Nobody did. Nobody could. They were they were experimenting. They were they were they were working on the fly. But the uh, the federal government in in Canberra took great delight in their troubles uh, mm-hmm. and in in raising a supercilious eyebrow. And that set the tone, I think, for political point scoring, which continues to this day. Uh, Morrison particularly was keen to laud Gladys Berejiklian, fellow New South Mm -hmm. Wales Liberal, to say what a fabulous job she'd done, the gold standard, et cetera. 
that was reflected in the media with a ludicrous magazine piece in the Australian Financial mm -hmm. Review, Gladys Berejiklian, the woman who saved Australia. That's come back to bite a few people on the ass. It hasn't aged think, well, has it? Think, that that, no, that line. <laughs> I think it was uh, News.com's Samantha Maiden who, who quipped that she's now at risk of standing accused of, of being the woman who basically unleashed the Delta variant on the nation, which is, is probably it more is fair to say. largely looking like that. Yes, yeah. I, I think she probably went into a lockdown too late. But I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist or, or an economist. Mm. Mm. Uh, Mike, you wrote a very interesting piece in the most recent uh, edition of the Saturday paper, uh, How Power and Factionalism Work in Berejiklian. You actually spoke of the way that the relationship and the different factions within the party and that the way the Murdoch media has portrayed it is that Gladys and RPM are very close and She's his favourite premier of all the premiers and such. But you actually painted a fairly different picture to what was really going on behind the scenes. Would you like to elaborate? Well, that, that, that's right. Berejiklian and Morrison have never been all that close, frankly, mm -hmm. despite the fact that you know, they have the same power base in New South Wales. Um, Berejiklian's always been very much in the moderate faction of the party. Scott Morrison has always been uh, a bit of a chameleon um, in terms of factions. You know, he um, famously turned up at the right faction meetings and the left faction meetings. So there's there's that to start with. And the, the other thing, of course, is that, that circumstances have separated them somewhat because um, when, uh, when a state goes into lockdown, fingers of blame are inevitably pointed. And it was one thing when you had a Victorian Labor government mm -hmm. and a, a federal coalition government pointing the fingers at one another. But in the case of New South Wales, of course, we have two coalition governments. So, you know, when, when I spoke to one quite senior minister in, in New South Wales, you know, he was talking on background, but you would swear that you were talking to Anthony Albanese. I mean, it was the mm. exact same lines, you know, that Scott Morrison had two jobs to do. He had to look after quarantine and he had to get the vaccine rolling out and he blew both jobs. So it's quite hostile, I think, at the moment between mm. the New South Wales government and the federal government, albeit that they're of the same political persuasion. And of course, you know, apart from the backgrounding that's going on to people like me, we see this in uh, some of Berejiklian's public performances. I mean, hardly a day goes by when she does not stress the fact that we would not be in this um, unfortunate position in New South Wales. Um, had the rollout proceeded more smoothly. Mm. Now, you know, that's that's obviously a wild exaggeration, but, you know, there's there's a great deal of finger pointing going on between the two levels of government, mm. and it's making it hard for both of them, I think. I don't think Morrison actually has friends. He has allies, and he's, he's the ultimate uh, transactional prime minister. Uh, exactly. In one month, he can be best buddies with Tony Abbott. The next month, uh, his closest and dearest political ally is Malcolm Turnbull. He is a man who shifts uh, with the wind. Uh, Mike Seckham said there is a chameleon. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty much right. Uh, he will go anywhere, do anything, say anything uh, to cling on to a power or the illusions of power. Uh, Berejiklian can be an ally and a friend to be lauded to the skies at one minute. Uh, but if she starts to get in the way, then he'll, uh, he'll throw her overboard. I, I think he's the most untrustworthy prime minister we've ever had. And I think also that, that his lauding of Berejiklian, you know, having the gold standard and what have you, was was motivated as much by using it as a stick to beat Dan Andrews with. Yeah. Um, yeah. As it was by genuine admiration for Berejiklian. 
And what do you think? What do you think the media's part to play uh, in this is? Uh, because there were various parts of the media, and I am very much talking within the factions of, of Murdoch and the, the whole the halls of News Corp, who really jumped on that bandwagon. Mike Seckham, you worked for the Australian uh, a number of years ago. <laughs> sorry to sorry <laughs> to bring that up. We're not holding it against you. <laughs> and and it wasn't and and the Australian was quite a different place. I might add back in those days. I mean, it was it was always conservative leaning, but you know yeah. it was very good on things like um, um, uh, indigenous issues and things mm-hmm. like that. It was not nearly the the, the right wing mouthpiece that it's become now. Right. It certainly wasn't the the sort of um, outsourced PR unit for the for the coalition government. And I know you worked but, for it during the sorry to interrupt. I know you worked for them during the, the Hawke and, and Keating governments, but they they weren't afraid exactly to hold power to account, regardless of who the coalition was, whether it be Malcolm Fraser or John Howard or Bob Hawke or, or, or Paul Keating. That's absolutely true. And now I think they're terribly confused because much like Morrison, they, they bashed the Victorian government mercilessly, you know, as, as Mike's already mentioned, um, you know, the dictator Dan stuff. And now when Berejiklian's in the same position, they're not adopting this, the, the mm. same tactics. Mm. And f- furthermore, they're, they're somewhat split. You know, they, they used to be very anti-lockdown now they've read the wind, and for the most part, they're, they're pro-lockdown. You know, you, mm. you even get people from Sky, like Andrew Clonell, who's an actual reporter with mm-hmm. Sky, unlike some of their commentators, mm-hmm. turning up at, at Berejiklian <laughs> press conferences and demanding to know why she isn't locking down harder, mm. which is which is a complete reversal of what was the situation when Victoria was in lockdown. And furthermore, not all elements of the Murdoch empire have followed suit. I mean, we still have some of the people on Sky, some of the commentators, the Andrew Bolts, the the Alan Joneses of this world, mm-hmm. opposing lockdowns and being very sceptical about the benefits of vaccination. So, you know, the, the whole Murdoch picture is not looking nearly as monolithic as it usually does. Well, touching on Alan Jones, so and, and I guess Sky News, I mean, they've been going to some pretty dark spaces in recent months. Alan Jones in particular has been waging a war on, on multiple fronts from vaccine disinformation to vitriolic attacks on the premiers and basically all health experts. He's called Dr. Chant a village idiot, for instance. Okay, so here's a bit of a Dorothy Dixer for you both. Do you think he's gone too far? Mike Carlton, to you first. Gone too far for the Daily Telegraph because they sacked him today. Uh, yes. His column will no, long, no longer appear. Now, it's a, a unique, a singular achievement to be sacked by the Daily Telegraph for being a right-wing lunatic. It's <laughs> their column to start. Uh, and the word around the traps is that he has not much longer to last at Sky either. His contract has another couple of months to run, I think. Right. And he'll probably get punted from there too. But there seems to be a bit of a shift going on at New Zealand. I, mm-hmm. I suffered a bit of a disadvantage here because I'm an old-age pensioner and life is too short now to read the News Limited papers day by day. But you get the picture. Mm. Uh, Mike Seckham made the point there that um, they're the sort of the, the PR mouthpiece for the government. I tend to think of it in reverse, that the government is actually the political wing of the Murdochracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the official reason for his being let go today was that, you know, his anti-lockdown and anti-vaccination columns aren't really resonating with the telly's audience. But do you, yeah. do you think the telly's actually smelling the tea leaves as such, or or is there a major reversal happening at, at News Limited over its recent coverage? Who knows? Who knows the occult processes they indulge in over there? But it does seem that the telly is now uh, backing a vaccination campaign, while Jones has been, you know, saying that the whole thing is a farce and a fraud and a fake and that, that we're all being conned. 
I suspect he just no longer was willing to, to go along with their suddenly reversed editorial line. Let us all remember, I think, this is quite important, that Rupert Murdoch was about the first person in the world to get the vaccine. Right. <laughs> That's probably not a bad point, not a bad point. Look, I don't know if any of you uh, ever have a look at uh, the Batuta, but, uh, you know, they, they were very quick to point out, you know, here's this man talking about, talk, speaking out against vaccinations and, and lockdowns, but he made Sky News basically build a studio for him at home so he could broadcast from home. So he's, you know, high up above in his tower. He doesn't need to leave uh, his home. He's keeping fairly safe, yet he's blasting the need for lockdowns and, you know, dispelling the notion that we all need to get vaccinated. Yeah, I get most of my news from the Batuta Advocate and from Sean McAuliffe, actually. I find them very accurate. (laughs) And dispassionate. And, of course, the Saturday paper, Mr Seckham's excellent outpour. Absolutely, absolutely. Staying on Sky News, they have been been routinely attacking and undermining lockdowns over quite a protracted period of time when, as we know, it's the only proven way to reduce transmission minus mass vaccinations. Corey Bernardi, for instance, on his Sky program has been referring to people being forced to have experimental vaccines and, and the service by and large has been beating up stories about vaccine passports as some kind of government overreach or even something far, far darker, like, you know, the Great Reset or something. At what point does Sky News cross the line from being a news service with a successful business model into being a media outlet that is basically just a danger to the public? Mike Seckham, to you? Well, well, on this particular subject, I think it is a danger to the public. I mean, I think the same on climate change, my dad. I mean, Sky News has been set up essentially to be something akin to what Fox is in America. And, and I think it's kind of heartening in a way that that whereas Fox has been broadcasting this kind of disinformation about the virus and the vaccines, and people have been swallowing it in large numbers, all the Trumpies fall upon it eagerly, it doesn't seem to have resonated as much in the Australian community. And I think that that's something of a feather in our national cap, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. Sky News' audience tends to be older and and with that they probably have access to a more narrow group of media portals. Um, Seeing we're about to hit August and still 25% of people over 70 are not vaccinated at all and with that Sky News is is still spreading disinformation and we talk about experimental vaccines. Have we passed the point of not just calling this out but needing needing to ask for action and, and, and sanctions against Sky News? Mike Carlton? I don't think you can lay all that at the door of Sky News. Some of it, perhaps, yes. But the uh, the rollout of the vaccine was abominably mm. handled. The, uh, the the seeds of doubt were sown about AstraZeneca uh, months ago when it, when it was suitable for people over 70, then over 60, then perhaps, well, if you asked your doctor, you could have it if you were 40. There was utter and total confusion about that, which you lay at the door, not of Sky News, but of the door of Morrison and that stupid health minister of his, um, Hunt. Uh, they totally botched the rollout. They engendered no confidence, no enthusiasm. They raised grave doubts in in the minds of of, of many elderly folk and their families. And, And that's the reason I think that still many older people are not done. Add to that the absolute shambles of what of failure of any sort of rollout in aged care institutions, which is the total responsibility of the federal government. And that's why you have the situation we find ourselves in today, I think. Sky News, part of it, yes, but only a minor part in that sense. Mike Seckham, you were talking about Sky was set up basically to be, you know, Australia's version of, of Fox. 
disinformation in right-wing cable news space relies on, on, you know, basically a smoke and mirror trick with presenting people as experts who, you know, just simply aren't experts. You know, in the case of Alan Jones, he's been using Craig Kelly. Uh, this kind of practice, it's not unique to just Sky's COVID coverage. Mike, you, you mentioned the climate coverage being another issue which comes to mind where the actual experts are not just avoided, but they're attacked. Do you think it's time the media had greater restriction about misleading its audience? Because, you know, clearly where Craig Kelly is presented as an expert on COVID-19, the system hasn't just failed us. It's really fallen to pieces. Well, well, I I do think so. Uh, You know, I'm always troubled by by the idea of of closing down people's opinions and, you know, cancelling them, essentially. I really think the best you can do is just call them out for the idiots they they are and Mm -hmm. hope that ultimately people... Go, go with the expertise. But this is a troubling aspect of the, mm. the whole right-wing media landscape, you know, social media and mainstream media as well, which is underlying all of this is, is a fundamental distrust of expertise. It's almost like the fact that you're an expert in a subject what makes you immediately uh, subject to suspicion. Mm. I, I just don't know quite what you can do about that. It's, it's sort of a very proud anti-intellectualism mm. Um, mm. That, that I find deeply troubling. Mike Carlton. Added to which, added to which, in Jones's case, you can you can add misogyny as well. His uh, <laughs> his record of loathing women in authority is uh, mm. is there for all to see. I mean, it goes back it goes back generations, well before Julia Gillard and so mm. on. He does not like women in power. Hence his uh, his jihad now upon Gladys Berejiklian, Berejiklian, and that appalling attack. Those constant appalling attacks on uh, the New South Wales Chief Health Officer, Kerry Chan, and calling her the village idiot and so on. So add to that, mm. on, you know, that, that's sort of another layer over the anti-intellectualism that Mike was talking about. Mike Carlton, you, I mean, uh, Alan Jones, you know, and if, I hope you don't mind me mentioning, an old rival of yours, basically. I think you, you once went head-to-head with him when you were at 2GB and yeah. he was 2UE. I'm, yeah. I'm guessing you knew Alan fairly well amongst the... <laughs> <laughs> not in the biblical sense, no. <laughs> I wasn't getting at that. <laughs> no judge. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, to, to quote Jerry Seinfeld, but I, I'm sure you knew him fairly well around the trappings, around, you know, the broadcast trappings. Yeah, and, well, uh, did you, what did you make of him in those those early we, days? We had adjoining offices uh, there, there for a while. Right. Um, I, I, I always thought he was a trumped-up little martinet uh, of, of no particular insight <laughs> or value. Right. Um, he would he bullied his staff. Uh, there, there was there was no intellectual underpinning. He used to try and have it have have it thought that he'd been to Oxford mm-hmm. and was uh, an Oxford graduate, etc. Well, he had been, but he did the, he did this I think a nine month teachers training scholarship there and so on. Uh, I, I I thought he was I thought he was an odious creature uh, in in every sense of the word. Uh, he was not a journalist. He had no rigor about accuracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, simply existed for his own uh, self-aggrandizement. But what did you really think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that, lovely thing. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, well... But, but it, is, it, is, it is largely ridiculous, isn't it? Here is a, a, a multimillionaire with a, with a, a, a beautiful uh, farming property in Sydney's southern mm. highlands, uh, an elegant uh, apartment on Sydney Harbour mm. overlooking the Harbour Bridge, uh, chauffeured here and there in a Mercedes Benz, and posturing as as the voice of uh, of uh, the little people. I mean, this is mm. bizarre. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it would be the first time that um, turkeys have ever, you know, really cheered for Christmas, right? 
Yeah, no. Certainly not in this country. Mm. Uh, do you think Sydney getting into a deeper hole over over Delta, over the Delta strain, has broken a simple partisan story that had taken hold that, you know, Victoria messed it up and Sydney was the gold standard? Is the lesson here, do you think, for the media and our pollies to keep politics out of reporting on what is it's, it's a health problem, it's a health crisis? Mike Seckham? I couldn't agree with you more. It was it, it's, it was very unwise to rush to judgment when Victoria was... No doubt they made their mistakes, but they were going through the, the motions of learning how to cope. And people were far too critical too early. And to her credit, I don't think Berejiklian was one of them. I mean, it was, it was more other people in the federal coalition. I mean, Morrison for one. Josh Frydenberg in particular was, was just mm. hysterical about it. Mm. Berejiklian, and I made this point in my story, Berejiklian herself never claimed to have the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and although she came into some inevitable conflict with some of the other premiers about lockdowns and things, you know, particularly with Queensland, I don't think she sought to politicise it in quite the same way as others did. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's part of the reason that, she, that in spite of the fact that she clearly locked out too late, she possibly hasn't suffered as much in, the, in public terms of public esteem as she might otherwise have done. The, the, the initial claim, you know, by Morrison and others was we're all in this together. And then they immediately started undermining this notion that we were all in it together mm. by, by getting stuck into one another. It would have been nice, I think, if we had all just learned the lessons um, from one another and accepted that people were doing their best. It's instructive here, I think, that the, the New South Wales Labor opposition has behaved itself impeccably. They are simply mm. supporting Berejiklian. and they're offering very, very little criticism, the occasional constructive suggestion. Compare that to that shambling bunch of trolls and halfwits, which, uh, which infest the Victorian uh, opposition benches, the Liberals down there, who are a disgrace. And they played a great role, a great part in politicising the response down there in Victoria. Morrison and, and as, as Mike said, Frydenberg had a, a large part in that too. They were anxious to prove that the Victorian Labor government was, was hopelessly incompetent, uh, and that undermined public confidence. I, th- I think also here there's there's an ideological incompetence that we've seen, which is which yeah. is there's a neoliberal belief that we had to put the economy first, mm. and that keeping uh, and this was you know we we saw this widely among the sort of economic commentators in the Fin Review and the Australian and such like that you know we should keep things open at all costs for the sake of business. And what has been shown is that you have to look after the health aspect of it first. And that that will actually achieve a better economic outcome as well. You know, mm. if you control the virus, you keep the economy running. Mm. They they looked at it, I think, the wrong way around, and and that's now plain for all to see. Mm. You're listening to Fourth Estate, and our guests are Mike Seckham and Mike Carlton. The media is largely self-regulated and, of course, government involvement in the Fourth Estate is is something we should want to avoid. But do you think, is it fair to say that self-regulation has has failed the industry and that the Australian people, and basically the Australian people in this case? Mike Carlton, to you? I'm I'm always wary about about bringing in laws and rules and regulations to to sort of uh, load on top of the media. It it can be dangerous. But there is also uh, an argument that in the broadcast media, that television and radio, that there should be stricter controls. Uh, ACMA, whatever it's called these days, I don't know, the, the, the Broadcasting Regulation mm-hmm. Authority, is a, is a toothless tiger. It's a chihuahua. It can enforce nothing. Yet if patently false and untrue statements, outright lies are broadcast, ACMA should have the power to order and to force 
an apology and a correction. They don't at the moment. They have uh, only a slap on the wrist available to them. That's all they can do. As for newspapers, I, I think there should be some redress where incorrect information, where lies and falsehoods, and falsehoods have, been, have been published. There should also be some, I think, mechanism for retracting that, for apologising and, uh, and withdrawing. I don't know how you'd do it. As I say, I'm quite wary about that, mm. but there, there is a case for it. Not for opinion. I mean, opinion something else, and you know, you've got to let that run free. But where mm -hmm. factual, mm. Well, what should be a factual news report is actually shot through with error and propaganda. I think there's a case for doing something about that. I don't mm. know. What do you think, Mike? Well, uh, I, yeah, I, I sort of agree with you, but but as you said, the logistics of it are very hard. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, you know, as as the old saying goes, everyone's entitled to their own, own opinion. No one's entitled to their own facts. You know. Um, yeah. But, but it's been become increasingly different to separate the two out. Well, the um, opinion columnists now... seem to be driving a lot of the, the disinformation that we're, that we're seeing at present. So that in itself, everybody is entitled to an opinion, but the problem is that some people, uh, some of the population are taking these opinions as fact. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. Um, but once again, you know, who determines... The, the line between opinion and fact. Mm. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's that's the hard thing. What 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 body do you take it to the courts? You know, uh, we mentioned ACMA. It's just a very very difficult needle to thread. I think the press council has received a lot of criticism lately. Its adjudications have taken way too long to even be relevant anymore, and it's also seen by many as being just a bit too timid. Do you think is it salvageable, or do we need do we need to look for a new model? And if so, what what might that look like, Mike Seckham? I, I I don't really feel competent to to venture an opinion on on a potential new model. Mm -hmm. Although I agree that the, the council as it currently exists is it's like being you know beaten with a wet lettuce to to have an adjudication against mm -hmm. you and and a lot of media you know either report it in a very minor way that there's been an adjudication or they just ignore it. It doesn't seem to me to have any consequence at all. Mm. Mr. Carlton? I'm not confident either to say what, what should be done. I think something must be done, but God knows what. <laughs> I, I, I understand. I, I just bring this, pluck this out of thin air. I think the Canadians have some stronger form of redress for error. Uh, in both print and the broadcast media, but I'm not sure what it is. To be, to be honest, that's not very helpful, I know, but there, there must be ways of improving the situation we have now. Okay, well, we've been putting the blowtorch on the media in this edition of Fourth Estate and its coverage of the pandemic. Let's end on a positive note. For each of you, what has the media got right and, and which sections are, do you think, leading by example? Are there standout stories or are there standout journos? Uh, to you, uh, Mr Carlton, first. Lord, that's that's very hard. I'm I'm at the point of, of exhaustion of the whole thing, to be, <laughs> to be brutally honest. I wake up each morning, reach for the iPad, and and flip through the news uh, mm -hmm. the news apps, and it's all COVID, COVID, COVID. Mm. There's a new epidemiologist every day. There's a new journalistic take every day. Uh, I'm actually weary of it. I'm mm -hmm. exhausted by it. And 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 I'm a journalist. I'm, I, I read for a living. What the average person, the average consumer, the average part of things, I don't know, but I suspect many people have switched off. I can't see anybody who has come out head and shoulders as a, as a shining exemplar of, uh, of journalistic perfection. No. Present company excluded, of course. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Does it make you want to, uh, Mike, you, you uh, Mike Carlton, you retired from, from radio over 10 years ago. Does it ever make you want to get back into the game? 
No, no. I mean, I used to be a Boy Scout once, but I have no desire to return to that either. (laughs) (laughs) Those those, those days are gone. I'm happily writing a book of naval history at the moment. Okay. It's sane. I'm I'm going back to the relatively peaceful and uh, sanguine times of 1941. (laughs) Things were much better then. When we had a a world world war raging, basically. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. it was relatively simple. (laughs) (laughs) But you still consider yourself a journalist. Yeah, I guess I am. Uh, born and born, raised and bred, and all that sort of stuff. Yes, yeah. and, and, and proud to have been one. Although I, I rather quail and, and 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 shrink from some of the wretched excesses of the trade these days. Right, uh, Mr. Sackham, What about yourself? Uh, any standout stories or journos, or do, do you see any sections of the media that are really leading by example through, throughout all of this Look, chaos? I, I, I don't know about sec- I don't know about sections of the media per se. First of all, I would say you know ignore the Murdoch tabloids. Ignore the shock jocks by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Ignore Sky News. Um, yep. That said, you know, I, I, I would have to go to individuals. I mean, I love Ross Giddens. Yes. In the Sydney Morning Herald. I yes. Love, I love Laura Tingle on the ABC. Mm. Um, yes. Who's, who's just very sharp. Uh, Lenore Taylor, um, Catherine Murphy. In fact, the... Most of the people that I seem to admire these days are women, women reporters, women commentators. Mm. And, you know, of course, if we were to look internationally, you know, you know, I love various people in the New York Times and what have you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, basically, you know, your ABC, what used to be Fairfax, The Guardian, the Saturday paper, dare I say, you know, the, the, the people who actually take it seriously, who don't take a tabloid approach, mm-hmm. who even when they reach opinions, do it on the basis of accepted fact. You know, those are, those are the people you have to look to and the people you have to admire. Well said. On that note, I'd like to thank both of our guests this week. Mike Carlton, thanks for joining us again on Fourth Estate. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. And Mike Seckham, thank you for being on Fourth Estate as well. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Many thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please do stay well and you can catch us next week on Fourth Estate. 